there's a lot of disappointment in the world, and I think that what Mark shared was absolutely appropriate. I was thinking this week that regardless of who we see in national offices, and by the way, I got a friend in Germany that was talking to me yesterday, and he said, we see it happening here too. I mean, from there, they can see what's going on here, but they see it happening in their country all over the uh, EU, so it's European Union as well. Uh, this is an, a worldwide thing. It's not just here. I think we're headed into the end times. But uh, I was thinking that regardless of who's in office, you have to ask yourself, are they worse than Nebuchadnezzar? Are they worse than Nero? Uh, are they worse than Jezebel? Okay. If not, well, remember that believers had to endure that too. Okay. And God is still faithful. He's still in control. Right? Uh, if you want to know, the, to understand politics and uh, national movements and so forth from the world perspective, from, from God's perspective regarding the world, look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. It says that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomsoever he wishes, and he places over it the basest of men, the lowest sorts of people. Okay. That explains politics even within a corporation. And give that some thought. We're in First Peter, chapter one. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy as we approach your word. We ask for the humility to recognize that we don't have the answers that you do. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our minds, open our eyes, and open our hearts to be obedient to your word in Jesus' name. We're in First Peter, chapter one. Uh, last week we finished up in verse twelve. We've seen the security of the believers. We've seen the joy that's their choice and that's only possible because of their position in Christ. We've talked repeatedly about what's positional truth, that I'm in Christ, and there's many things that are true of me simply because I'm in Christ. If you want to read a list of about 17 of them, uh, you can go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and there's just this long list of things that are all true of you simply because you're in Christ. It has nothing to do with how you feel today or how you're doing spiritually or anything. It's true of you because you're in Christ. <clears throat> so with that position and that security and the possibility of such joy, the logical question seems to be, what now? How should we respond to this reality? Oh, by the way. How should we respond to this reality? And Peter addresses that question in the last 13 verses of this chapter. He begins by listing three things that the believers are to do in verse 13. How should we respond? Well, the first thing he says, gird up the loins. He says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I'm told that when a man of that time was called to some sort of active work as, for instance, a coming battle or a task, some kind of hard work, he would prepare by picking up the hem of his tunic or robe or whatever sort of long garment he was wearing and tucking it into his belt or girdle as they used to call it. They'd wear these broad belts <clears throat> and then cinch it up so that it couldn't fall back down and trip him. Now, I don't know for sure what the historical accuracy of that. I've only read that. I wasn't there, you know, 
2,000 and 2,500 and 3,000 years ago when these commands were given, this particular one 2,000 years ago. But over and over, the scripture, scripture tells us to gird up your loins. Well, so all I can really do is look at the context of the various places where God said to a particular person or a particular group of people, gird up your loins. And in every case, it meant to prepare yourself for a coming battle or coming task, work to be done, someplace to go. <clears throat> it meant to prepare yourself, whether it's a fight or a trial or a task. It was an admonition to get ready for action. <clears throat> God wants to use your life. You need to prepare yourself so that you're usable in his hand. So he's going to talk about what it means to gird up the loins of your mind. <clears throat> we see this over and over in the New Testament because we're saved to serve. We've been set free from our slavery to sin and now we're free to go to work with Jesus. When I was a very small child, and I'm talking less than three because I remember my my younger brother wasn't born yet and he was born when I was three uh, my dad was building a I don't know what it was supposed to be a study I guess for himself in the basement of the house we were renting <clears throat> uh, and I wanted to help daddy you know toddlers are real great help <clears throat> so he says all right and he gets this big nail he was nailing studs into the, that's not what you call it, the floor plate into the floor so you could add a wall. Um, he starts this big nail, puts my puts his hand around my little hand so he couldn't, I couldn't possibly hit my hand with a hammer. And then wrapped his hand around my hand on the hammer so it actually was going someplace close to where we wanted it to. And he gave about three licks to that nail, got it good and started, and said, that's good, now you can go help mom now. And off I went, feeling very proud that I'd helped Dad. Okay, but we're going to see that's how God asks us to work with him, too. He gives us the strength. He gives us the will. He does the work through us and then rewards us as if we had done the work ourselves. Okay. <clears throat> but we need to be prepared to serve. He's asked us to join us in his work. When Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, it was, it was a, a two-man yoke, the kind you'd share to pull a load. <clears throat> I've never raised a horse, never will, but I've been told that when you want to train a young horse to harness, to pull a wagon, pull a plow, whatever it is, that the best way, the fastest way to do that is to harness them in double harness with an older horse. Because the older horse will obey each command and do what it's supposed to be doing and it won't put up with a whole lot of nonsense from the younger horse. Jesus asks us to join him in double harness, work with him. <clears throat> The next thing he said is, be sober. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. That's the second thing. Being sober is not the opposite of being drunk. It's looking at things realistically from God's perspective. Not frivolously, but also not overly optimistically when God has not promised a nice outcome to things. In Jeremiah's time, the false prophets were all saying, oh, God's going to take away this enemy within two years. We're going to have the kingdom here. No, they weren't. I mean, Jeremiah was excited to hear that. He says, amen. And he started to head home, and God told him, turn around and go back. He was lying. I didn't send him. He's not a prophet of God. Go back. I'm bringing judgment. You can read that. That's in the book of Jeremiah. 
<clears throat> we don't want to be overly optimistic when God has not promised a good end to circumstances, nor are we to think pessimistically, thinking God doesn't care. That's also not true. He's with us in our trials, with us in our hard times. We've been left in this world to be lights in a dark place. How could we be lights if it was all light and shiny around us already? Huh? You know, there's that old joke about which is more important, the sun or the moon? Well, the moon, obviously, because it's shining at night when we need light. And the sun's only shining when it's already light out anyway. <clears throat> of course, that's just corny. But the fact is, if it is all light outside, nobody's going to notice the shine of individual lights. We don't see the stars in the daytime. They're there. You just can't see them. Okay? God's left us specifically to be lights in a dark world. And if life was all easy for us, we would not be seen as lights. We would be seen as somehow privileged characters, and they would see us with envy and anger and say, yeah, nothing ever goes wrong in their life. No, things do go wrong in our lives, maybe more than our share. <clears throat> Paul said, it's given unto you not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Okay? That's not part of what the world has. The suffering is only part of what the church has. Suffering for his sake. <clears throat> if we're complaining all the time about hard circumstances, then we're not shining his lights either because we're just seen as whiners then. <clears throat> but if we see life soberly, we accept hardship and privation as being part of life, and we choose to find our joy in the Savior himself as opposed to just in the things that he provides. We talked about this last week too. then the people around us can see that we have something to be desired. We have clear hope when there doesn't seem to be any hope. And we're experiencing joy in the midst of grief. And we're experiencing peace and serenity in the midst of turmoil and tumult. It's an unusual thing, and it's seen as valuable by people around us. It's a mark of stability and strength, and it attacks, attracts attention to the source of that strength. They want to know, okay, what's making you tick? They may not really want to hear the gospel that you're preaching, but they do want to know what's making this work in your life. And eventually that means they're going to hear the gospel. I had a fellow at work that I had offered, I had asked him, I said, are you interested in spiritual things? He says, no. And I thought, oops. And the next words out of his mouth, he says, but I'm real interested in you. I want to know what's making you tick. I got to share the gospel with him more thoroughly than anybody I've ever shared with. Because he was interested. Not in spiritual things. He was interested in what's making this work in his life. <clears throat> so the second thing was to be sober. And the third thing is to hope to the end. For the grace that's to be given to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, the people that read this originally, the people to whom this was written, every one of them died. Okay? And every generation since then has hoped to the end to see the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I believe that we're very close to that time. I believe that we may see Jesus return. <clears throat> we may experience the rapture ourselves. But we're still told to hope to the end. So we keep pressing on, doing what we were told to do, placing our faith in the faithful creator who claims us as his children, building our lives on the foundation of that new relationship 
with the Father. Now, what about that new relationship? You've been born again. <clears throat> You're in a new relationship with a new Father. You have a, a new fountain of life in your life. You've, you've got a new source. You're no longer springing from the source of Adam. You're springing from the source of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, it says, All in Adam died. All in Christ shall be made alive. That's your new position, your new location. You're in Christ. You've been born again. You have a new father. <clears throat> and we want to imitate our heavenly father just as a toddler tries to imitate his parents. Verses 14 through 16, he says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he who has called you has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, meaning your way of life, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. <clears throat> God's primary attribute is holiness. We think of his primary attribute maybe as being love. Even his love is subject to his holiness. His holiness and his righteousness had to be satisfied in order for his love to be given to us. He couldn't reach out to us with his eternal love without satisfying his righteousness and holiness. It's, that's what happened at the cross. <clears throat> God's primary attribute is his holiness. So we need to consider what that means if we hope to imitate it. The word holy means set apart for a purpose, a, sp a specific purpose. The, the vessels in the temple were holy to the Lord. They were set apart for his use only and for the use of the service there in the temple. And that's all they were for. When they got stolen by Nebuchadnezzar and used for all kinds of terrible things by Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, that didn't make those things less holy. It meant that they had to be cleansed and rededicated before they could reuse again in the temple. But they were still God's personal belongings. That didn't change. So what does the word holy mean, and how can we apply it? It doesn't mean walking around with your hands pressed together in an attitude of prayer and with a pious expression on your face. The world recognizes that kind of phony charade, and it hates it. So do I. So does God, for that matter. The, the Pharisees were expert at that kind of phony behavior, and Jesus called them on it. He says, you scrub the outside of a cup and leave the inside filthy and full of extortion and excess. Matthew chapter 24. 3 verse 25 <clears throat> he hates that kind of hypocrisy so what does it mean <clears throat> we're called to imitate the holiness of God because he's created us by the new birth to be holy as he himself is holy it means that as his child as his new creation you belong to him you're created for his personal service and fellowship it's, it's a matter of living for him that's what holiness is about is that what I say, what I do, my thoughts, my, my patterns of behavior, how I treat the people around me is all subject to his will. Otherwise, I'm not living in his holiness because holiness means that he's the one that has the choice about how I behave. He's the one that's going to control how I'm used and by whom. My whole life belongs to him. That's nothing new. Even when I was an atheist, Every subatomic article, uh, particle and every atom of every molecule of every cell in my body, he created, not to mention the air I breathe, the food I 
eat and the water I drink. He created all those things. Okay, so if there's ever anybody who could claim ownership of me, it's him. He's the creator. But now he's recreated me in his own likeness through the new birth. I belong to him double. I belong to him. I'm holy because he made me to be his personal possession and a tool in his hand to affect the lives of those around me. who've been reborn in his image, were created for his pleasure and his service. And it's our privilege to be in his service. It's not some sort of forced servitude. It's an honor and a blessing. There's reward involved. So he calls us to imitate him and his holiness. Paul begged the believers to do just that in Ephesians 5.1, where he says, I beseech you, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Following his steps, be like him. This is a part of what's involved in girding up the loins of our minds in preparation for that service. It's part of what it means to be sober, to recognize, no, this is serious business. There's a real battle going on, and God's really in control, but he wants me to be on his side of the battle. Okay, That's part of being sober. It also means we're going to have to learn his word. For me to subject my will to his... I have to know what his will is. For me to know what his will is, I'm going to have to know what his word is. <clears throat> you know, over in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says that the scripture is full of exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. If you want to see God's nature starting to be recreated in you, get into his word. Because... 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says that by these, by those exceeding great and precious promises, we can be partakers of the divine nature. Psalm 119.9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Verses 10 and 11 says, With my whole heart have I sought thee, O let me not wander from thy precepts. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. That's about memorization. <clears throat> If you want God's word to have an effect on your life, you need to start soaking it into your life. It's the application of God's word is the only way that God has promised that our lives can be turned around for him. <clears throat> now, since we're born of his seed, as it says over in 1 John 3, 9, it says his seed remains in you, we're at a spiritual level genetically predisposed to bear his likeness. We're expected to look like him. We're expected to act like him. We're expected to have his mannerisms and his character. <clears throat> One of the first laws discernible in God's word is the law of the harvest. For those of you that have missed out, we're getting ready to talk about that this Wednesday in Genesis because one of the first things we see once God starts creating living things is that each plant bears seed after his kind and the animals bear young after their kind. And finally, he gets down to the creation of man and says, let us create man in our image. Like begets like. This is the law of the harvest. What you sow is what you reap. That's why we can plant a field of corn and not, expand, and not expect pumpkins or acorn squash or, or vetch or whatever all over that field. I can expect corn, hopefully. <clears throat> but... Depending on the seed you plant, that, that results in a particular plant. 
and God has planted his likeness in us at the new birth. He expects to see his likeness coming out of it. God made man in his image, but that image has been marred by sin. We know that. So he offered the new birth, wherein he recreated us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24 says that you put on the new man, which after God is created in the likeness of God, is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's what God says about your new nature, that it's completely righteous and holy, just like him. So you need to allow it to live out its life in you so that that's what people are seeing and not your old sin nature. As we read in Psalm 119, the only way that God has offered to change our lives is through his word. Now we're going to answer also the question of what's the means by which we were born again in the first place, but we're not going to see that until we get to verse 23. So there's a little bit of foretaste for you to be thinking about his word. For the moment, we want to remember the price that was paid for us. Verses 17 through 19 answer the question, how did we get here? He says, if you call upon the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, notice it says he's judging works, not sin. Where were your sins judged? At the cross. Okay. This is talking about the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of works. You want to see the eternal result of your life? This is where it's going to come out. Judges every man according to his work. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed, that's an important word, with corruptible things as silver or gold from your vain conversation, that means your way of life, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He says, since we call upon the Lord as our father, we need to consider and remember how we became his children. And the result should be sobriety and respect for the holiness of God and a dread for offending the eternal one who loves us. We were not bought out of our slavery to sin by a cash payment, of any sort, nor were we freed from the law of sin and death. By the way, the law of sin and death started clear back in Genesis 2.17, where he said, In the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. It was summarized in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, where he says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's the law of sin and death. And every one of us has been subject to that law, even if we've never been subject to the Mosaic law, which was given to Israel specific, specifically but it's not through some payment that we could offer that we were freed from the law of sin and death. This is especially important in the case of these Jewish believers. They already believed in God, and they all thought that they could do something to make God like them. They were sure that they could obey the law. They could do things to make God like them. And we think that too. We're convinced that I can do stuff and make God like me. I'm as good as anybody else. Well, okay, you're as bad as anybody else, too. But the fact is, every one of us has a sin debt. I've already broken God's law. You can say what you want about how good I do today or tomorrow or the next day. The fact is, I've already broken God's law. Okay, I can't unbreak it. There's a sin debt there, regardless of what I do from now on out. And the only one who can pay that sin debt was Jesus at the cross with his blood, that one blood sacrifice that God chose is the only 
way that that sin debt can be paid. It says we're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We need to look at that word redeemed. <clears throat> the Greek word here in this particular passage for redeemed is elutrothete. I had to write it down which is a form of the infinitive verb lutrao, which means to purchase with the purpose of being set free. You buy a slave for the whole purpose of setting them free, that's that word, okay? But there's three words in the New Testament translated redeem, and collectively, they paint the picture of what redemption is to us. The first word is agorazo. The, the marketplace was the agora. In fact, when you talk about a person with agoraphobia, it means a fear of open places like the marketplace, the square, town square. We don't like being there. Okay, Agorazzo means bought in the marketplace. Jesus bought us in the marketplace of sin because that's where we were. We were already enslaved to sin. The second word is exagorazzo. It means bought out of the marketplace of sin. Marketplace, period. Uh, the agora is the marketplace. Exagorazzo means to take them out of the market by buying them. Okay. It's not going to be returned to the market. It's not going to be sold again. But the third word is the one we're looking at here, lutrao, which means to purchase with the purpose of setting free. So those three collectively paint the picture of Jesus' redemption for me because he went into the marketplace of sin, bought me out of the marketplace of sin with the price of his own blood and with the purpose of setting me free. That's what redemption is. <clears throat> I was enslaved to sin. Jesus went to the marketplace of sin to purchase each of us with his own blood. He purchased us out of that marketplace, never to be returned there. We belong to him eternally. And best of all, he purchased us with the purpose of setting us free. He's not just trying to increase how many workers he's got in his field or how many household servants he's got. And that's not it. He purchased us to set us free. Yes, I'm saved to serve, but I also have the freedom to not serve, in which case I suffer loss, but I'm not losing my position in him. Now, I don't want to lose reward. When payday comes around, I'd like to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what Howard lived to hear. Some of you knew Howard Ingram. He would have told you that all he was hoping for is to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. <clears throat> okay. We talk about the freedom to serve and the freedom to not serve. That's a fact. <clears throat> Be aware that I can I think I can say without exception, every one of us was pretty much living a pointless life before we knew the Lord. Why do I say that? I mean, no matter how good a thing I was doing, ultimately, eternally it had zero value. Because I was still in my sins. Okay. As a person who's in Christ, I now have the option to allow him to work through me, and the things he does through me, through his word, by his Holy Spirit, have eternal value. They're, they're going to be eternally honoring God, and they're going to be offering eternal reward, just like a child who's being rewarded for helping mom and dad, even though, really, they didn't get much done. They just got in there and helped. They're being part of the game, okay, part of the work. <clears throat> I'm now given the option to work with Jesus in a task that has eternal value and that's going to earn eternal rewards. Now, 
says that I was redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, blemish without spot. In verse 20, it says, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. This is an important concept. It's very easy to just pass over it and not notice it. It says he, Jesus, was foreordained, that means appointed before the time, when? Before the foundation of the world. Now, we're, Wednesday, we're studying Genesis. This came before Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1-1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But this came before that beginning. That Jesus was foreordained to be our Savior before we existed, before we had fallen into sin. Revelation 13, 8 says he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This one makes it more clear. and says, before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> Jesus was always plan A and there is no plan B. Before he created the world, God ordained that Jesus was to be the sacrifice for the fallen human race. The human race that was still uncreated, untested, hadn't fallen into sin, was, out, was not in any kind of danger whatsoever yet, because it didn't exist yet. Before he formed us, he made the provision for us. Do you see the wisdom and grace and care there? That God was providing for us in advance, knowing exactly what was going to happen. Now Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 11, we have talked about it last week, or the week before, I can't remember now. We talked about God's purpose from before the foundation of the world, was to use the church-age believers to teach the manifold wisdom of God to the holy angels that are still in heaven with him. Believe it or not, we're somehow an object lesson for them. I don't get it, but I'm glad. I'm glad to know that somehow my muddling around here on earth is of some kind of value to those guys. What do they gain by it? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't got a clue. I can go along with the game and let God teach them. Okay. In the meanwhile, all I want to do is do what he wants me to do. Okay. But it does say that God had that plan from before the foundation of the world, and he laid the foundation of the plan before he laid the foundation of the world. Just like an engineer drawing the blueprint before he builds a project, God laid the foundation for his plan to be completed before he laid the foundation physically of the world. Now, in Hebrews 1 Verse, I don't know, 10, I think he says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth, of the world, and the heavens of the works of thine hands. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son, by the way. Jesus is the creator. But this happened before that. He laid the foundation for his plan before he laid the foundation of the world. So where do we stand? What are we supposed to do? <clears throat> Verse 21, it says, Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God seeing verse 22 that you've purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit that's what faith is obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently now it's interesting that he's not commending them simply for believing in God these were Jews. They believed in the God of Israel already. But there's been a change. <clears throat> James points out 
this is not James, this is Peter, but James points out that belief in God is not necessarily something meritorious, that the demons also believe in God, and they tremble. They don't get any credit for believing in God. They've seen him face to face. Okay, And here he says something different. He says you believe in God through Jesus. He says by him you believe in God. So these believers, these Jews, as, as we're kind of reading between the lines, since they were the ones dispersed, apparently, in Acts chapter 8, then these are also the believers, the Jews, who became believers during Acts chapters 2 through 7, where we saw it culminating in the, in the stoning of Stephen. These were the Jews that had come from all over the known world to meet in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles and heard Peter preach and heard the other disciples' testimonies and became believers and then were kicked back out by the persecution and they went back to their homes. He says something's changed in them. See, they don't just believe in God because that's what they were taught to believe. It says now by him, through Jesus, they believe in God. And the result is an unfeigned, genuine love of the brethren. Agape loves the fruit of their lives because they believe through Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit when they believed. They didn't have that before. <clears throat> he changed their hearts and their desires just like he's changed our hearts and desires. See, I don't have the same heart and desires that I had 45 years ago. Let's see. No, 47 years ago now, I guess. I don't have the same heart and desire that I had as an unbeliever. Each of us has a new nature. Each of them had a new nature because they've been born again, same as we have. And along with them, we are commanded to fervently love one another with that agape love in spite of circumstances, in spite of how we sometimes hurt each other, things like that. We're commanded to love one another with that agape love. And finally, finally, he reminds us of the means by which we've been born again. Look at verse 23. He says, You're, you've been born again, how? Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. Been born again by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Take special note of what Peter says here. He says, you were born again by what means? By the word of God. It had nothing to do with works. It had everything to do with your having heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and having placed your faith in that message, thus placing your faith in the giver of that message, the origin of the message, the God who gave that message. That's what Jesus said in John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him who sent it, who, who sent me, has everlasting life. That's how you get born again, by trusting in Jesus' promise of eternal life. Trusting in his blood sacrifice at the cross. You've been born again by the word of God. You've placed your trust in his promise and in the God who gave that promise. And that correlates with verse 3. If we went all the way back to the beginning, it says that we've been begotten again. The seed of natural birth is corruptible. The seed of God, in this case, because it's the word of God, is incorruptible. And that's what he says here. He says, you've been born not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. It's an important concept because, you see, so we're sometimes given to think that our own persuasive speech is what draws people to Christ. You can take college courses in persuasive speaking. Sorry, that's not going to help in evangelism. It might. might seem that way. 
But the fact is, if somebody was drawn to Christ because of persuasive speaking, then if somebody else speaks with more persuasive speaking, going the other direction, they can back off. The door to the truth is the will, not the intellect. How do I know this? We think we're drawing souls to Christ. What did Jesus say about that? John chapter 12, verse 32, he says, And I, if I be lifted up, shall draw all men to myself. We're not supposed to be dazzling unbelievers with our wit and wisdom and, you know, pithy understanding of things as they is, so to speak. We're supposed to be lifting up Jesus. And I, if I be lifted up, I shall draw all men unto myself. That's what Jesus said. Not if you talk sharp enough. In fact, Paul echoed that idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the preaching of the cross be made of none effect. We can actually reduce the effectiveness of God's word by adding in all our human reasoning. We can make it less effective. Sometimes the very best thing you can do is just tell somebody what God's word says. I remember reading the testimony of a guy that somebody was trying to share the Lord with him, and they, they weren't all that clever or anything, and he kept on coming up with clever arguments against anything they said, and they would sigh and say, well, all I know is it's given unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. That's the only verse they could think of at the time, and they just kept quoting that verse over and over, and God used it to break them down. They repented. They realized, no matter what I say, I'm still facing physical death and facing the judgment of God thereafter. And it broke down their defenses. They decided maybe they better listen and find out how to know Jesus personally. Why? Because this guy was so clever? No, because all he did is keep on repeating God's word to him. I, I, probably that's not the verse I would have chosen, but for him, that's what God needed him to hear. It's given unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. God says it's his word that changes things. And Peter concludes this passage with a clear comparison between the flesh and all its human wisdom versus the word of God and his eternal wisdom. He says in verses 24 and 25, For all flesh is as grass, and all of the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So we need to bear that in mind. You know, we've asked about how do I respond to the Redeemer? Well, one of the things I need to learn is word, and then I need to use his word when I'm sharing with other people, and I need to be obedient to his word and allow his Holy Spirit to live through me. God's word has eternal value. Everything we do on our own is destined to decay and failure. And what God chooses to do through us by his indwelling spirit and by his perfect word not only has eternal value and will bear eternal fruit, but it's also going to pay eternal reward. If that's what you're hoping for, then that's the way to do it. God gives us the will to serve, and then he does the work through us, but then he rewards us as if we had done the work ourselves. I don't understand that, but that's what he says. Amazing grace, huh? Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd free us from ourselves, free us from our human wisdom, free us from our addiction to our, our own ideas. Teach us to subject ourselves willingly to your will. 
to your Holy Spirit and to the teaching of your word. Continue to remake us into your likeness. Let us shine in this dark world as reflections of your light. In Jesus' name, amen.